0: Uh, Romans chapter two, and uh, before we get there, I want to bring us up to speed on where we've we've been in Romans one. In Romans one, we establish a, a a fact of life that is really kind of astounding. We don't always think about it, but I want us to look at it uh, uh, clearly and see it for what it is. Uh, by the way, the, the the title of today's message. Uh, is without excuse. Without excuse. We're continuing in our series in the book of Romans. And part three is our own righteousness isn't good enough. Our own righteousness is not good enough. Continuing on in our series called Without Excuse. And we learn from chapter one, among the many things we learn, this is something that I want us to have stick with us, and it is this. All of humanity by means of general revelation, have been given knowledge of the existence and judgment of God. Go ahead and write that down. All of humanity, if you've got an outline there, fill in the blank. All of humanity, by means of general revelation, that is to say the cosmos, the universe, what we can see, have been given knowledge of the existence and judgment of God. You say, really? Absolutely. That's exactly the teaching of Romans 1. Look at this slew of verses here. Romans 1.19. What may be known of God is manifest in them, that is mankind, for God has shown it to them. Romans 1.21, they knew God. Romans 1.28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Romans 1.32, knowing the righteous judgment of God. All these things in Romans 1, are you, are all, these, all these statements are used to describe humanity generally. And So we made the observation that there really are no true atheists. There are only professing atheists. Because everyone is born with, and to a degree, according to verse 32, maintains a knowledge of the existence and the judgment of God. They know He exists and they know when they sin that they are doing wrong. It's innate. Therefore, In light of this knowledge, Paul says in Romans 1.20, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. And he went on to describe uh, humanity as without excuse. And he went on to describe in verses 29, 30, and 31 of chapter 1 a whole slew of awful actions and characteristics that describe such people. They are murderers. They are haters of God. They are proud. They are boastful people. But even as Paul writes this long and awful list of sins that describe those who shun God, it's almost as if he got to the end of that list and he started thinking, wait a minute, I can see how some who are going to read my letter could misunderstand my point. Doug Moo says this in Following chapter one's list of sins, he says we can imagine many self-professed moral people adding their amen to the kind of denunciation of heathen sins that we find in one eighteen to thirty-two. Suddenly, however, Paul turns on these people and accuses them of doing the very same things. That guy looks pretty funny up there, doesn't he? You're supposed to laugh. Come on, get it out there. Laugh. Give it a big hearty laugh. All right, that's a good one. All right. That guy, I need that suit? I do need that suit. That looks good. That's a good-looking suit. This guy is the kind of guy that says, Amen, when you start talking about the sins of the heathens, right? Amen, brother, preach it. But Doug Moose's point is well taken. He says, look, our, our, our purpose in reading Romans 1 is not to say, man, look at that. Amen, look at how bad those people are. Look how awful they are. Look at those terrible sins they commit. No, no, no. Paul does not wish us to read the sins of Romans 1 and think, well, good thing I'm not like that. He doesn't want us to read it and think, man, look how bad they are. No, Paul wants us to read those lists of sins and the list of human sinfulness that he's described and say to ourselves, I am no better than these. I am no better than these. All of humanity is inexcusable. That was Paul's point back in one, chapter one, verse 20, and it's precisely how he begins chapter two. Take a look. Let's stand, if you will, and we're going to read together as a, as a people of God here, the, uh, chapter two verses one through 11. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Two verses one through 11, Paul says this, "Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of His goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. God who will render to each one according to His deeds eternal life, to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, He'll render indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. You may be seated. Chapter 2, verse 1 again. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now previously, Paul had argued that all of mankind was without excuse because he has within himself An innate knowledge of God. But now he is elaborating more fully on a particular kind of person who falls into this category of being without excuse. And and I've I've listed it for you in kind of a a graphic form here. Who is without excuse? We've got this circular graphic in place. We're asking the question, who is without excuse according to Paul? Well, the first thing he's going to say is, hey, look, all of humanity is without excuse. 1.18 118 to 3.20, that whole section, two full chapters of material, that's the whole point. And that's why the title of this series is Without Excuse. That's his whole point is Paul's trying to establish that. But within this segment, we're going to see groups of people that he's going to include. The first group uh, that we've already seen, really, is the Gentiles. We, that's, we, we didn't mention it so much, but, but much of what we saw in Romans 1 was really related to Gentiles, particularly Uh, there's a lot of indications in the text that that's who Paul primarily had in mind. And he's also going to talk about Gentiles later on. But then there's a second group of people who is going to be without excuse, and they are the Jews. And Paul's going to describe them a few verses down the road from our verses today. Although, for our purposes today, the group that he has in mind are self-righteous people. And many scholars believe that though they're not named explicitly that Paul really does have self-righteous Jews in mind. Uh, I think that it's fair to say that that this also describes Jews with a particular emphasis on the self-righteous ones. And so, all of humanity is without excuse. And Paul says, I'm going to identify you in various people groups who might think you're not without excuse, and I'm going to point out and say, absolutely, you are without excuse, and here's why. And so these are kind of the categories that we are working with. Today, we're dealing with the orange-colored, the self-righteous people, especially, I think, the self-righteous Jewish people who are without excuse, according to Paul. And again, Paul's speaking particularly of his community uh, in the first century. Uh, you know, he, he is dealing with what he sees in humanity from the Greeks and from the Jews and from everyone in between. And he himself is a Jew. So as he critiques the self-righteous Jews, he is also in a sense critiquing uh, his own people. All right, let's move on here. Back to verse 1. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever way you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things." The self-righteous ones. The ground they stand on is no firmer than anyone else's. They judge another person's actions and yet they do the same thing. Now, now you might think, well, wait a minute. If, if it's a self-righteous Jewish person in particular, they don't do all those lists of vices that we saw at the end of Romans chapter 1. So to a certain extent, they're, they're very unlike uh, their Gentile counterparts in that. But remember the teaching of Jesus? Jesus spoke so much, he says, Look, you know, yeah, I know you don't physically commit adultery, but you think about it all the time, and that's the same thing. And Jesus said, Look, I know you don't uh, actually commit murder, Jewish people, self righteous ones, but you think about it, and you plot, and you deceive, and you find ways to. Gain power over others. And he says that's the same thing. And so this is really what Paul's driving at as well. He says, look, they're judging these things, but really in spirit they're doing exactly the same thing. So they are without excuse. Their supposed morality gives them no claim before the judgment seat of God. God is not fooled by them. Verse 2, but we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. Our judgment is not based on uh, how we look, how our conduct looks to the person on our right or our left. We don't we don't look around and say, "Well, am I more moral than that person?" Okay, good. No, judgment is not based on a curve. It's not based on who's around you. It's not based on being in the top 10 percentile of good works. Judgment, the judgment of God is not subjectively based. It is objectively based on God's truth. God is perfectly holy and true. And even one transgression, even one sin, is all it takes to be rendered guilty before God. Of course, that's why Christ came. Verse 3, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God or do you despise the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? Tom Constable had a, a very helpful uh, comment on this verse. He says this. Uh, he says, They, the self-righteous ones, should not misinterpret God's failure to judge them already as an indication that they are blameless. They should realize that God is simply giving them time to Repent. Let's go back to the verse. They assume that just because, wow, I'm not being judged. I'm not incurring the wrath of God. I'm, I'm above reproach. See, nothing's happening when, when I've had my little white lies over there. They assume that they're escaping God's judgment. And Paul makes plain. He says, look, you're, you're not escaping anything the only thing you're failing to recognize is that God is giving you time to repent. He's giving you time to think about your ways. And He's not just throwing wrath upon your sin in an, on an immediate sense. Instead, He's giving you time to respond to your sin and to respond with repentance. The self-righteous person is foolish to suppose he or she will escape the judgment of God. As Paul has established, one sin is all it takes. But the self-righteous person doesn't want to believe that. They desperately cling to the notion that their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds and therefore God will somehow somehow show favor to them. And uh, besides, they they really don't think their, their sins are all that bad, right? They think of them as little white lies, kind of harmless thoughts and actions. And while they think this way... They fail to see the patience of God and the goodness of God according to verse 4. God is trying to give them time to see the error of their ways and turn to Him. And did you catch the end in particular? This is a, just a critical... For me, it's a, this is a, an essential component to Christian living. If, if you want to know what, it, what it's like to be growing in your walk with God, pay attention to at the end of verse 4. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. Repentance. What does Paul mean by that? Paul is linking. He's linking the attributes of God, the characteristics of God to a repentant and moving on to a holy lifestyle. He's saying, look at the attributes of God, pay attention to what God is doing, and you will find yourself repenting and moving closer to Him. So often we try to get sinners to repent by pointing out their sin over and over and over and over. We say, look what you're doing. Look how awful that is. Look how bad you are. So often our method of bringing about repentance includes excessive and focused attention on the person's sin. But here Paul suggests just the opposite. Instead of trying to bring about repentance by looking at yourself, Paul suggests looking at God. And instead of psychoanalyzing your own bad actions over and over again and meditating on them and thinking about them and, oh, woe is me, Paul suggests, look at the goodness of God. Look at His characteristics. Look at His attributes. Why does He do that? Because people's hearts change not when they look at themselves. It's when they look at God, for who He is. Are you looking to repent of a sin that has haunted you for some time? Do you deal with lust repetitively? Do you deal with anger incessantly? Do you are you a, a whisperer, a gossip? What is your vice? What is the sin that haunts you? May I suggest that it that. Repenting and turning from that sin is less about you concentrating on it and more about you concentrating on God. Of course, this is exactly Paul's thought in Romans 12 when he says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, the goodness of God, to present your bodies as a holy sacrifice. Living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Paul again in Romans 12, what does he appeal to for holy living? He appeals to the attributes of God. You want to be a repentant person? You want to be a holy person? Stop looking at yourself. Concentrate on the Lord. Fill your time with Him. And your repentance and your holiness will naturally come from that. Fill your time with Him and thinking about His goodness, His mercy, His attributes, and you will not be conformed to this world, but you will have a renewed mind. That's Paul's method. I think parents, you know, parents, we are all in this together. We're trying to raise up respectful and morally pure children. Um If we want to do that, if we want to raise up a morally pure child, a respectful and good child, then we need to spend time focusing their attention on the Lord. When your child does something wrong, before you discipline them, spend time discussing with them how Jesus would have acted. Spend time talking with them the good things Jesus wants them to do. If all we do is concentrate exclusively on what they did wrong and their sin, and the entire moment of discipline, that entire preparatory and instructional moment that we have right after our child does something wrong, if all we do is concentrate on what they did wrong, we've done our child a great disservice. A tremendous disservice. We're focusing on the sin. And focusing on the sin does not lead to repentance and holiness. Focusing on the Lord does. So be proactive as you discipline your children. Do not concentrate exclusively on what they're doing wrong. Instead, focus on what, how Jesus would have them act. How Jesus would have had them do things. How Jesus would have had them conduct themselves differently and lift their eyes up. Our children are not exempt from Paul's teaching. If we want children to have soft and moldable hearts, then we must point them to God's goodness and mercy. Okay, back to the argument at hand. That was kind of a little rabbit trail. Paul's speaking exclusively here of the self-righteous person in Romans 2. He does not want them to get the impression that they are somehow exempt from God's judgment. He is reminding them that they, like all of humanity, have sinned against God. And we come to verses 5 and 6. In accordance, but in accordance with your hardness, you self-righteous one, and your impenitent heart. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. It is these verses that give us a clue really that Paul is speaking of self-righteous Israelites. You may notice the terminology. We have the words hardness and impenitent hearts. Very akin to the notion of stiff-necked people in the Old Testament. And so the kind of key terminology that Paul would use most specifically for uh, a Jewish audience in mind. But really, it applies to all self-righteous ones. I don't don't mean to just limit this to to the people of Paul's day. This applies to anyone who is self-righteous. They are hard. They are impenitent. And yet, as they do that, they are storing up wrath for themselves Now, this wrath, what is it? Earlier earlier in chapter 118, we learned that the wrath of God is being revealed presently on the earth. It's happening now. And how is it happening? It's happening by God removing His protective hand from men and women who sin against Him. He's removing His protection and letting them have in full the consequences of their sin that leads to a debased mind. It leads to wicked and vile passions in them. It leads to all sorts of awful things when God lifts his hand of protection and they sink deeper and deeper into sin. That's happening now. That's the expression of God's wrath now. But here, and scholars debate this, but here I think it seems so much, uh, I think it's so much the plain reading of the text that this wrath. That we speak of in verses 5 and 6 is not a present wrath. It is a future wrath. It is not the same wrath described in 118. It's actually a much more severe wrath that is coming. Coming because God is holding his hand of protection over just a bit longer on some. He says, In accordance with your hard and impenitent hearts, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render future tense to each one according to his deeds. Here in Romans 2:5 we find that God reserves the right—he reserves the right—to withhold His wrath until the final day of His choosing. It shouldn't surprise us that so often the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, is described as a time of unprecedented wrath and judgment. And it is interesting, if Paul is speaking particularly of the self-righteous Israelites, it is interesting that that they are going to be among the ones who enter into the tribulation period. The church is going to be raptured. Those who are believers in Jesus Christ, you who have expressed faith in Christ, you are not going to go through the day of the Lord in its fullest sense. You will be raptured and you will be kept from the hour of trial according to Jesus in Revelation 3. But the Jewish people will not. The unbelieving Jews will enter in to the last days. And in part, though they will be protected by the Lord, in part, they will experience um, the wrath that God pours out on this earth. In part, they will experience uh, the, 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 the horrific nature of those last days. Famine and pestilence and awful things happening in the cosmos. They will experience these in part, though ultimately the Lord will protect them. And He will return His hand of protection upon Israel. In verse 5, Paul suggesting that the measure of God's wrath upon sinners is in accordance with their hardness and impenitent heart. That is to say, the greater a person resists God, the more severe their punishment will be. Why? Because God will render to each one according to his deeds. This is a quotation of Psalm 24.12. And I've said before, I'm not going to go into it today, but I've said before, we need to rid ourselves of the perspective in Scripture that, uh, that heaven and hell is going to be an equivalent experience for all who go to those respective places. That's really not the testimony of Scripture at all. That's really not the teaching of Jesus. That's not the teaching of Paul. That's not the teaching of Peter. In fact, those who go on to the Kingdom of God, those of us who express faith in Christ, we will. some of us who have been faithful will receive reward and a great measure of, of responsibility in the Kingdom. Others of us, who have not been faithful, well, we will make it into the kingdom of heaven, but we will not be given the, the the reward and the responsibility, the crowns, we might say. There will be there will be a degree of experience. There will be no more sorrow, there'll be no more tears, there will be no more none of that, no more death. But there will be degrees of experience in the kingdom of heaven, according to the scriptures. And likewise. There will be, I would argue, according to many Scriptures, and I could share them with you if you wish. I've got at least ten here that I point to. There are also evidence in Scripture that the lake of fire, hell, will not be a place where everyone is judged, everyone receives the exact same consequences. Romans 2.6 God will render to each one according to his deeds. That is to say... That in accordance with your good works, you even, you even who are unbelievers, you will store up for yourself a measure of wrath on the last day. Uh, I, I think that uh, we are on safe grounds, though it's not always a typical evangelical Christian thinking. We actually are on very safe scriptural grounds to suggest that both in the Kingdom of Heaven and in Hell, there will be degrees of experience. There will be degrees of reward and there will be degrees of consequence. And I would be happy to share with you some of those Scriptures if you're interested in studying that further. That's what Paul says in Romans 2.6. But the self-righteous person, oh, they can do no wrong. Therefore, for them, a judgment according to deeds sounds great. What a great idea! Yes! Render to me, says the self-righteous person, render to me judgment according to deeds. Well, let's continue. Verses 6 to the end of uh, of our section today. God, who will render to each one according to His deeds, notice this, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek for there is no partiality with God. By the way, if you look carefully, you'll see what's called a chiastic structure. Verse 6, verse 11. God will render to each one according to His deeds. There is no impartiality. Verse 7 and verse 10. He'll give eternal life to those who do such and such. He'll give glory, honour, and peace to those who do such and such. Verse eight and verse nine. Ah, but tribulation and anguish and awful wrath that will come upon those who do evil. These verses, in this beautifully constructed chiastic structure by Paul, these verses speak of two general responses to God. Uh, excuse me, two general responses of God to the deeds of people in response to a person's deeds, God will either give them one of the following. Number one, eternal life, glory, honor, and peace. Or number two, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish. You say, wait a minute. Did I just hear that correctly? Did Paul just say that one of the things that God offers to humanity... In response to their deeds, their works, is eternal life? How can that be? I thought that eternal life can only be received by by faith in Christ. I thought that salvation was by faith, not by works. If you're feeling a bit uncomfortable, you should be. Because this is a very difficult portion of Scripture to interpret. And it requires us to pay very careful attention to what Paul is saying. And so I want to spend the remainder of our time, bear with me another uh, ten minutes here, in this very difficult portion of Scripture. And I think we're going to be happy with how we come through it. I think it's going to make sense. Now let us remember, before we even begin to interpret this, that. The overarching theme of these verses is the judgment of God in verse 6. Notice carefully, it's about the judgment of God. And Paul tells us this judgment is based on a person's deeds, their works. Okay, we got it so far. But then we come to verse 7 where Paul suggests that one of the things God offers humanity in response to their deeds is eternal life. Now let's focus on that verse in particular here. Let's bring it up. Take one, we'll read it one more time here. God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life, one option, to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. Now, a lot of people try to explain this away. They try to explain, well, you know, those who are believers, they inevitably go on to good works, so it kind of makes sense. Or other people say, well, he's talking about eternal life, maybe in like a the sense of eternal rewards. No, I don't buy either of those arguments. I think they, they fall miserably to the floor. Because you see, Paul says virtually the exact same thing five verses later. Notice what he says six verses later. Romans 2.13, he says, "...for not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God." but the doers of the law will be justified. Huh? So here we have twice now, in the same context, Paul suggesting that eternal life, justification before God, comes by deeds, by works. And to that we say, what? How can that be? Once again, I, I find... Fewer words more pointed to the issue at hand than what Doug Moo has to say here. This is what he says. He says, Paul never denies the validity of this principle. What principle? That the doers of the law will be justified. He never denies it. But he goes on to show that no one meets the conditions necessary for this principle to become a reality. I could not have put it better. Doug Mu is exactly right here. Paul never denies, never denies in the scriptures the theoretical, the theoretical idea that a person could conceivably enter heaven by means of perfect compliance to the law. Paul never denies this. And guess what? Jesus doesn't deny it either. Notice what it says in Luke 10. Jesus doesn't deny this principle either. Remember the story right before the story of the Good Samaritan. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so the the guy answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this. And you will live. You say what? Why would Jesus do that? Why would He tell this man that he can inherit eternal life by doing the law? Well, I submit to you that the only reasonable and the only biblical answer is because Jesus knew that to be true. It is theoretically possible to enter the kingdom of heaven, to inherit eternal life, to be justified by perfect compliance with the law of Moses. Ah, But, let's, let's move on here. I want you to write this down. Neither Jesus nor Paul denied that salvation could be attained by perfect obedience to the law, but, here's the big but, but both Jesus and Paul affirmed that no person could perfectly obey the Law. And here we come to the, to the, to the main crux of our, of our text in Romans. The whole point of this portion of Scripture in Romans is for Paul to establish the fact that we are sinners, that we are depraved, that we have no hope, that we, our own righteousness is not good enough. So go back to the verse here for a second. Verse 6, God is going to render to each one of us according to our deeds... Ah, but our deeds are without hope. He'll give us theoretically eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But no one gets there. Notice at the top, verse 6 and verse 11. There's no partiality with God. He's just. He is an impartial judge. He will listen and consider All the evidence brought before Him for a person who wants to enter the Kingdom of Heaven. And what evidence? What evidence do you suppose a self-righteous person is going to bring before God on the last day? What is the self-righteous person going to say to God when God asks Him, why should I let you into the Kingdom of Heaven? Isn't it true that the self-righteous person is going to turn to God and say, look at my deeds. Look at my works. I deserve eternal life based on my deeds, God. And God, at that time, will be a judge. And what does a judge do? He hears the evidence. All the evidence. He renders a verdict. And He pronounces a sentence. Take a look at Revelation 20. Final judgment. And I saw a great white throne with Him who sat on it. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened. Huh. The hearing of evidence. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. And they were judged, each one according to his works. No partiality. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. What does a judge do? He hears evidence, he renders a verdict. And He pronounces a sentence. What happens in Revelation 20? God hears the evidence. The books of works are opened. He renders a verdict. Eternal life or the lake of fire. And He pronounces a sentence in accordance with their works. Being the impartial judge that He is, God will ask that the books be opened. And He will read the things that are written in these books. And God will impartially evaluate whether or not the person before Him has the righteousness required to enter the Kingdom of Heaven. But of course, no person who appeals to their own righteousness will gain entrance into the Kingdom. And that is why Paul definitively concludes in the book of Romans notice what he says in Romans 3:20 Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight That is a repudiation of the theoretical idea of Romans chapter 2 verse 7 That is Paul's ultimate and final repudiation disavowal that eternal life could be gained by good works. Oh, it's a theoretical idea. God is impartial. He'll listen to the evidence. But no one can attain it. Why can no one attain it? James 2.10 For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. And continuing on. Back also in Romans. And the commandment, the law, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. So here's Paul's ultimate theology of trying to attain righteousness by works of the law. It is a fruitless effort. Let's move ahead to our application section here. i got four things that I want to leave us with. Four things that I want to leave us with as we, as we uh, move on our way this morning, as we leave this text. Number one, Paul means for us to recognize ourselves among the sinners described in Romans 1. We are all sinners and without excuse whether or not we choose to acknowledge it. We're supposed to resonate with that list of vices. We're not supposed to say, wow, that doesn't look like me. We're supposed to say, yeah, I'm just like these. Number two, let us measure our conduct in accordance with God's truth and not merely compare it with others like the self-righteous person. We should measure our works and our faithfulness in accordance with what God would have us do and not look around and try to figure out if we're better than someone else. Number three, when we sin, this is important, when we sin and it seemingly goes unpunished, it is easy to presume that our sinful thoughts and actions weren't so bad after all. But let us remember that the goodness and patience of God is meant to lead us to repentance and not indifference. I think that this is a principle that so many of us could take to heart. Just because our sin does not go punished uh, from our vantage point does not mean that God is indifferent toward it. And His patience toward us should lead us to repentance. And fourth and finally, though it is theoretically true, we have learned today, that a person can be justified by perfectly fulfilling the law, Paul knows that this is impossible in practice. And therefore, let us fix our eyes not on our own self-righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ that comes by faith. You know, In all of this, friends, the whole point of this section in Romans is to say, look, you are a sinner. You need a Savior. Your righteousness isn't good enough. You need someone else's. I encourage you all to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive Eternally, the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this morning. We thank You, Lord, for Your Word. For all that it means to us. God, help us to recognize our sinfulness. To not think ourselves better than another. What, a, what an exercise in futility that is. Help us too, Lord, not to seek approval by our own self-righteousness. Help us to look at You. Your goodness. Your mercy. Your attributes. And we know, Lord, that those things will help us toward a repentant and a holy life with You. Thank You, Father, for the teaching of Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few quick announcements here. Just wanted to make mention we did this at the end just to kind of run through them briefly. But uh, next week we're going to have a guest speaker, John Yemela, a personal uh, friend of mine, a great teacher. Many of you know John. Message of Life Ministries, I encourage you to visit. His website, what an excellent website it is for teaching and learning the Word of God. That'll be next Sunday. Also, Cassie Claussen's leading that Christmas program, and uh, we do need some set builders, costume makers, etc. So contact Cassie. Cassie, why don't you wave your hand? There she is. Wave your hand nice and high. There's Cassie. Uh, meals. If you'd like to bring a meal, we've got a couple pregnant ladies needing some meals. Uh, Jody's due any day, and I know Carissa is also on bed rest, so contact Liz. The Grims leave in two days for Haiti. So let's be praying for them. In fact, why don't you make your way up here as I close in prayer, Lloyd and Monica. I want to pray for you both. And the Thanksgiving feast, please sign up for some food. We'd love to have you. This Folks, you do not want to miss this event. This is the event of all events. And if you fail to come to this one, Boy, something's wrong. Yeah, sign up for food out in the foyer. And last but not least, the uh, annual Women's uh, Christmas Coffee is coming up and uh, bring some photos of Christmas past. Ladies, make a note of that and uh, and be prepared for that great event. Lloyd Monica, come on over here. We want to pray for you as you head on out to Haiti. And uh, Lloyd, is there anything? Give me one big request that uh, is just pressing on your hearts as you prepare to leave. Safety. Safety. All right, that's good enough. Uh, Father, let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, Lord, thank You for Your righteousness that comes to us by faith in Christ. And Lord, I thank You also that because Your Spirit is within us, You are welling us up unto good works and unto a life that glorifies and honors You. And I this just now of Lloyd and Monica heading out to Haiti, Lord, uh, and just serving You in this capacity. Thank You, Lord, for their heart. I pray that their work with the orphanage and with local schools and pastors, Lord, that it would be just a fruitful time of ministry. Lord, uh, just protect them. Keep them safe. Keep their children safe as they remain home with Grandma. And uh, Lord, we also give You praise for bringing Mike Gibson home safe from Haiti. And now as Lloyd and Monica head on out again, Lord, just continue to uh, be with them Give them uh, ample opportunity to share the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ with all those who need it. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You are dismissed.